0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Colbert Report, Jim Hightower, The Daily Show, Sam Cedar, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Colbert Report.
1: Bill Clinton today or yesterday likened uh, what is going on in states like Florida and New Hampshire to Jim Crow laws. Uh, what is going on in terms of keeping voters away from the polls? The oh- in Ohio this week, listen to what they did in Ohio. There is, they're, they're trying to have a law. This is they, they're, they're allowing poll workers to not tell voters where their proper polling place is uh if they've made a mistake and gone to the wrong precinct so you go to the wrong precinct you get to that place you sa- and they say oh you're not voting here where do i vote i don't have to tell you this is about Inclusion. This is about one man, one vote, one woman, one vote. The GOP led House in, in Ohio passed an election law overhaul uh, that didn't have voter ID provision. However, the House tweaked the bill to weaken a law mandating poll workers to direct voters in the wrong precinct to their correct voting location. As the Cleveland Plain Dealer pointed out, mixing up precincts most often occurs in urban and impoverished areas of the state, leading turners to sarcastically suggest to Republicans, I guess the loss of votes per Some doesn't matter. John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, has that bill on his desk uh, waiting to to be signed. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's not sitting there, but that's kind of how it works. Uh, And again, it is a blatant, it's blatantly trying to target the people who are least prepared to vote. Uh, Clinton likened it to the poll tax. Likened it to say, "Okay, we'll give somebody a vote, but they have to be grandfathered in if they can prove that their grandfather was from America. Otherwise, they're going to have to take a constitutional test." Uh I've I've listened to a woman in in Tuskegee, Alabama tell the story about how she went to the poll three times when she was given the vote. She's probably 75 or 80 right now. And each time she went, she was the first time she went, they said, "Recite for me, please, the first uh... amendment to the constitution she couldn't do it the next time she went recite for me the third amendment to the constitution she couldn't do it she knew she said she knew sort of what it was about but verbatim they wanted third time she went back she kept going back and they said recite the preamble and she said to this group of us who were listening to her speak about it she said you know my lionel richie's mother was my music teacher and the day we got to music class at the beginning of the year each year she taught us to sing the preamble so she sat down there before this registrar and sang the preamble verbatim and she got her voting card uh... and and these are the kind of hoops that people are being made to run through can you imagine if you get to your polling place in ohio if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, and you go to vote, and by mistake, it's happened to me, by the way, I've gone to the wrong voting place, uh, and I vote all, I love to vote, I think voting's awesome, and I vote for, you know, I was, you know, anytime there's something to vote on, I go. But if you go there, and it's the wrong voting place, and I say, okay, I'm sorry, where do I go? I I know where you go, but I'm not going to tell you, because I don't want you to vote, because I, I see you're a registered Democrat, I don't want you to vote. If that, I mean, for that to be able to happen is astonishing.
2: No more turning to As Wisconsin gears up for recall elections next week of state senators and for the prospect of recalling Governor Walker early next year, Republicans in this state have made it harder and harder for people to actually exercise their right to vote. They passed one of the harshest voter ID laws in the country earlier this year, which will disproportionately disenfranchise minorities and the elderly, and it won't help college kids vote either because the state won't even accept IDs from the University of Wisconsin as valid for voting. On top of all this, Governor Walker is planning on closing down 10 branch offices of the DMV, making it much more difficult for people to go get their IDs so they can actually go vote. The Voter ID Act alone was probably unconstitutional, as judges in other states have so ruled, but in combination with shutting down the DMV offices, it's got to be unconstitutional. So what I'm wondering is, where's Eric Holder in the U.S. Department of Justice? The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department has a whole voting rights section. It should be suing the state of Wisconsin and any other states that have erected these high barriers to voting. The Justice Department can't let Walker and these other Republican governors take people's voting rights away. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
3: Folks, we are only 16 months away from the 2012 presidential election, and I am as excited as a kid on the 483rd night before Christmas. And what's got me jazzed is that the Republican field is brimming with superstars. I don't know how I'll decide between the ten of them. It's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You got white bread, white rice, cream of wheat potatoes, mashed potatoes, boiled potatoes, potato flakes, mayonnaise, packing peanuts, and for dessert, Herman Cain. Oh, that that was tasty! That was tasty! Jimmy, give me some more of that sweet candy cane!
2: He's a true son of the South Born and raised the American way. Well, his dad left the farmer just the clothes on his back, but he raised some cane and he never looked back. Herman Cain. Oh, Herman Cain. I on board, oh, we don't we don't we don't we
3: board the Herman Cain train. Woo! I am on board the Herman Cain train. The Kane train, the main Kane train, partly because when it comes to presidential candidate, I look first for an easily rhymed name. And folks, I am insane in the membrane for Herman Kane. He's hotter than propane, though he could use some Rogaine. It is Herman for Sherman. He drinks tequila and leaves the worm in. The other candidates are squirming. I've determined he's not German. Plus, the other reason I like him is you know Kane is fiscally conservative because that video could not have cost more than $12. And folks, folks, that's my man. This is the guy I am mostly excited because Kane is going to be my guest on Thursday, July 28th. Write that on your iPad in ink. He will not only be sitting down with me, but with the head of Colbert Super PAC. And that guy is looking to endorse somebody. Of course, before I endorse Kane, he would first have to sign this, my candidate's pledge. It's blank right now. I don't have any ideas what it is. I'd probably just get him to sign the blank sheet of paper and fill in the top later. be something good, America and stuff like that. But I have got to get a pledge from a super PAC because anyone who is anyone in Republican circles has a pledge now. Grover Norquist has his anti-tax pledge. Senator Jim DeMint got an anti-earmark pledge. And I'm pretty sure Mitch McConnell has inspired millions to take an abstinence pledge.
4: Imagine if a couple of national leaders dared to stand up to the corporate powers that have taken control of government. Imagine if one of them came right out and said, quote, I am fed up of living in a country ruled by lies, cynicism, and greed. And imagine if these leaders arranged for the people of the country to be able to throw out all political parties that, quote, represent oligarch interests or vote in the interests of oligarchs. Impossible, you say? Not so. In fact, it just happened. Not here, unfortunately, but in Latvia. Located on the eastern shore of the Baltic Sea, the people of Latvia broke away from the Soviet Union in 1991, but a handful of powerful insiders formed corporations that grabbed oligarchic control of public assets, making them billionaires. Using their corrupt fortunes, they literally privatized democracy, buying political parties and control of parliament. The oligarchs then pushed through laws that further enriched themselves while knocking down the incomes of regular people and ruining the Latvian economy. Sound familiar? What's not familiar to us is that a former president and the current prime minister of Latvia decided they had had enough of corporate rule. This spring, they launched a public campaign to break the culture of graft between politics and the corporate powers. And in May, they called for a national referendum to dismiss all 100 members of the corrupt parliament. The vote on that proposition is now in, and the result is stunning, revolutionary, and historic. 95% of Latvians voted to throw the bombs out. New parliamentary elections are set for September 17th. This is Jim Hightower saying America could use a dose of this cleansing tonic. And I have no doubt that Americans would throw out all of our corporate-controlled politicians if only that possibility was put to a vote.
5: And a half months away from what will definitely be called the most important election of our lifetime. And a veritable herd of Republican candidates have already begun the treacherous migratory journey to become their party's nominee. They will need strength, they will need agility, they will need luck, but mostly to survive, they will need money. Oh, a load of money we got the numbers yep. behind you. Uh, Romney, $18.5 uh, million. Tim Pawlenty, $4.5 Ron Paul, same. Uh, Bachman, $4.2 million. Huntsman, four point one. Herman Cain raised $2.5 million almost. Right. Gingrich, $2 million. Rick Santorum, not so much. Half a million <laughs> dollars. $500,000 in the war chest. bye Buh-bye. <laughs> Sadly, that image is still only the second most unpleasant image you get when you Google the name Santorum. Go ahead, do it. Do it right now. I can wait. And what about that old silverback, Newt Gingrich? By the way, that's not a wildlife metaphor. He stopped shaving his back when he left Congress. uh... Newt Gingrich, uh, what did he have? 2.1 million? Uh, that's more than I thought he would have.
2: There should be a little asterisk next to that because he's actually a million dollars in debt.
5: <laughs> okay, uh, there could be a little asterisk there, or you could change the number to minus 1 million. <laughs> Either way, it's a typographical issue. It's not really going to hurt Gingrich unless he was out there, say, I don't know, 10 weeks ago touting his fiscal bona fides.
6: I am debt-free. If the U.S. government were as debt-free as I am, everybody in America would be celebrating.
5: Actually, per capita, we owe $45,000 per person, so the U.S. government is, in fact, in a lot less debt than you are. (laughs) Heads up! (laughs) So so Santorum is a wounded wildebeest, and... Gingrich is apparently a spawning salmon, all right. But now we're getting a little elbow room in the field here. Let's see where Governor Tim Pawlenty's at. He's got $4.5 million raised this quarter. Still, though, he struggles against the perception that he...
3: Former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty kicked off three weeks of Iowa barnstorming in advance of the Fox debate and Ames straw poll next month with an RV tour and a warning that Iowans should not waste their support on charismatic candidates who can't actually win. Ooh,
5: Tim Pawlenty taking a bold stand against charisma. <laughs> Saying it's got no place in politics. Hey, look, this is not a popularity contest. Oh, oh, it is. Oh. Well, I wonder how the Daily Show will depict Pawlenty's demise. <laughs> If a Pawlenty campaign falls in the woods, does it make a sound? <laughs> Who's next? Herman Cain raised two and a half million. Two and a half million for Herman Cain. That's a lot of pepperoni for the godfather of
7: buffet-style pizza. <laughs> Why is Cain connecting? I think I'm connecting because of my passion about my support and belief in the Constitution.
5: Yes! Herman Cain has passion! <laughs> support and belief. In the Constitution but does Herman Cain have an understanding of the constitution? you said this week that you oppose construction of a new mosque in Murfreesboro Tennessee
3: what's
7: your objection to their building a new mosque our Constitution guarantees separation of church and state Islam combines church and state they are using the separ- the church part of our First Amendment to infuse their mosque in that community and the people in the community do not like it, they disagree with it. Right, right, right. First, let's address
5: (laughs) what I believe may be some pronoun issues. using our First Amendment to build their mosque. You think our First Amendment protects us from their mosque, when in reality, the First Amendment protects
7: their mosque from us. So you're saying any community, if they want to ban a mosque? Yes, they have the right to do that. That's not discriminating based upon religion, against the, the, their particular religion. I'm
5: pretty sure that's the definition of <laughs> discriminating based upon religion. Let me see if I can illustrate uh, that by replacing the word uh, mosque in that sentence, in the yes they can ban the mosque sentence, uh, with the word church, or synagogue, or synagogue, or <laughs> Scientology Celebrity Center. See, unless you're
7: suggesting Islam is something other than a religion, Islam is both a religion and a set of laws, Sharia law. That's the difference between any one of our other traditional religions where it's just about religious purposes.
5: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> It's very different, it's very different. Uh, I read about the strangeness of their combination of religion and laws in, in my people's holy book, the Torah, which... <laughs> Translated into English, I believe, literally means the law. I don't think the predators are even going to bother with this one. That is adorable. There's one candidate who seems to be gaining strength by the day, Michelle Bachman. But can her $4.2 million fundraising quarter help her fend off questions of her husband's gay reparative therapy business, her relative lack of experience and knowledge, and and this thing? Former aides say the
3: congresswoman is prone to, quote, debilitating migraines. Will Michelle Bachman's
5: migraines hurt her bid?
1: Michelle Bachman's migraines and whether this should be considered a campaign issue.
5: Yeah, I gotta say, of all my issues with Michelle Bachman's brain... (laughs) Migraines, not even top 20. But who are we kidding? We know who the clear frontrunner is. $18 million raised. Mitt Romney is the king of the jungle. He is the thick-maned super predator of the race. He is the Republican's Oslan. Although on Fox & Friends, backup weekend, Gretchen thinks there may be one big difference between Romney and Oslan. I think he could get a lot of money from that big time. because Romney obviously not being a Christian. What? Someone get that woman to book a Mormon. Really? Can't get in until February 2014? Wow, that thing's doing well. Well, I'm sure Backup Weekend Gretchen's producers will point out the fallacy of her reasoning during the next commercial break.
3: During the 6 a.m. hour, I had mentioned that Mitt Romney was not a Christian He is a member of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Church, and that
5: church does consider its members Christians. Oh, and uh, one other thing. Time for Lutherans to get off the pot. (laughs) Reformation's over, ass. (laughs) You in or you out?
6: believe me, this is not coming from the left. No one on the left is paying attention to Herman Cain's uh, t-shirts, but apparently uh, somebody's dishing this stuff. Herman Cain's um, uh, economic guiding principles. He's got three of them. I think the first two are pizza, and the third is production drives the economy. Uh, and uh, But then it comes out, well, that is uh, his campaign t-shirts made in America. Now, I, Latin America. Let's play this clip.
7: No, I wasn't aware that it was made in Honduras. I just was aware that it was Fruit of the Loom, which is an American company. So where they buy their T-shirts, you know, no, we did not look at that. And so, but Fruit of what I would do, you know, what I would do? I find out how many employees does Fruit of the Loom employ right here in the United States of America. And so, when people try to draw a comparison between some of the things that we buy also look at how many people are employed. It's the same thing with cars, okay? A lot of the parts are made here in the United States. And what about those salesmen and those salespeople that make a living selling products? So the fact that it was made in Honduras, I don't have a political statement with respect to that.
6: So wait a second. Um, first off, he says, you know what I would do if I was me? I would find out how many employees, uh, Fruit of the Loom employees in this country. But I'm not me, so I won't. Uh, In fact, I didn't even bother to look at the T-shirts. I mean, if you're running for president at a time of almost unprecedented unemployment in this country, uh, if you're running on the notion of Americans first and we need to grow the American economy, it doesn't occur to you that the crap that you buy to support your candidacy should be made in America? And then, of course, uh, according to Herman Cain, we are to believe that if this, uh, these t-shirts were made in America, there wouldn't be any salespeople in America. Thru Loom wouldn't hire any salespeople in America. They'd all be hired, I guess, presumably in Honduras. So what would happen is we would make the t-shirts in America, and then they'd be sold in Honduras. Somehow, we're to believe that Herman Cain, this, this, uh, uh, this, this titan of business believes that if we were to make t-shirts in America, we wouldn't be able to sell them in America. That's what I would do if I was me. I would find out how that makes some sense. That's what I, but I don't have a problem with, I, I, I just, I don't, you know. I mean, look at cars, for instance. Does he not realize that there are about uh, three million Americans who make money uh, and have jobs off the production of cars in this country, from people who work for uh, plants in this country, to people who provide parts who work for other companies that support these companies. My guess is no. I mean, when he had no idea what the two-state solution meant in terms of Israel and Palestine on foreign policy, everybody was like, "Well, so he doesn't know about the." primary issue in perhaps the most important conflict that drives our foreign policy all around. He'll pick up on that, but what he really knows is business. Uh, Apparently
7: not. Let's play the next clip. Would you consider um,
8: changing your campaign gear that isn't made in
1: this country?
7: Well, it depends on the reason why somebody would want me to change it. Changing it because someone says it's made outside the United States alone isn't a reason. So if I have a compelling reason, yes, but if I don't have a compelling reason, no. You want to know why? We live in a global marketplace. And we are not going to reignite the growth in this country with any sort of protectionism, no. The best way to reignite growth in this country is to turn America into the most business-friendly nation on the planet. And that's what I plan to do with my economic vision.
6: Okay, let's break this down. So if I had other reasons, aside from the fact that, A, I'm running for the President of the United States and I'm buying all my um, uh, campaign goods from another country, uh, or the fact that somebody pointed that out, if I had another reason, like, for instance, um, uh, that other reason could be uh, these uh, shirts are um, made out of asbestos. Maybe that would be a reason. Uh, they, they catch on fire. Just when you put them on, they catch on fire. And he's not going to do it. He's going to make America, not by protectionism, not by actually encouraging people to buy American made products. He's just going to magically wave his pizza wand and make it the best place for businesses to do business. So in other words, what he's going to do is pursue policies that drive American wages down to the level of those workers in Honduras so that Fruit of the Loom will make their underwear in this country and he'll be able to buy it. That's what he's pledging to do,
2: folks.
3: We need another guy to be the guy. Fortunately, the Republican presidential field is an embarrassment of riches. In fact, the first two words that come to mind are embarrassment and rich. But I am intrigued by one candidate who hasn't declared yet. Texas governor and future Josh Brolin role, Rick Perry. And I am not the only one who is sporting a Texas longhorn.
5: The new infatuation is Rick Perry, governor of Texas. I'm very interested in Rick Perry.
4: Who's your dream candidate to get into the race? I would
9: love for Rick Perry to get into
5: it.
8: This man needs to be president. I, complete-
3: <clears throat> I completely agree. This man needs to be president. We haven't had a Texas governor in the White House for almost three years. <laughs> Think of all the uncleared brush we've built up. <laughs> and folks, Perry may be going for it. Because on August 6th, he is holding a rally called The Response. This is Governor Rick Perry. And I'm inviting you to join your fellow Americans in a day of prayer and fasting on behalf of our nation. With the economy in trouble, communities in crisis, and people adrift in a sea of moral relativism, we need God's help. I sincerely hope you'll join me in Houston on August the 6th and take your place in Reliance Stadium with praying people asking God's forgiveness. Yes, come pray and fast at reliance stadium but bring your wallet because at nfl concession stands even nothing costs twelve (laughs) dollars governor perry knows that prayer is the only way to fix our problems folks as he told a group of donors with the tough challenges facing america quote it's time to just hand it over to god and say god you're gonna have to fix this (laughs) inspiring words Perry has looked at our problem squarely in the eye and said, "I got nothing. <laughs> Jump in any time here. Of course Of course, after this, the atheists took a break from scratching in God, we trust off our nickels to attack the governor.
1: The Freedom From Religion Foundation is arguing that Perry's attendance violates the separation of church and state.
10: This is exclusively Christian, and it is absolutely crosses the line of you
3: church and state. Not true, Godless Mancube. <laughs> the, response, the response rally is open to everyone. Its website clearly states that people of all ages, races, and backgrounds will be in attendance to proclaim Jesus as Savior. <laughs> See, it doesn't cross the line between church and state. It erases it. (laughs) And folks, Rick Perry is the guy. Because this rally proves he's tight with God. They would make a great ticket. Now I'm thinking Yahweh for vice president. Because like Joe Biden, he's kind of a gaffe machine. I mean, floods, pestilence, emus... Do we really need them and ostriches? Plus, God invented circumcision. The negative ad just writes itself.
1: Governor Yahweh claims he wants to cut federal spending. But he also wants to cut off the tip of your penis.
3: true, I gotta say. Plus, Perry is a straight shooter when it comes to shooting straight at stuff. Jim?
1: Texas Governor Rick Perry has a message for Wiley Coyotes out there. Don't mess
0: with my dog. Perry says he shot a coyote with a laser sighted pistol after it was menacing his dog during an early morning jog.
3: That's right. Rick Perry jogs with a laser sighted pistol. <laughs> strapped to his arm. In Texas, guns are also MP3 players. Now, when questioned about killing the coyote, Perry had a rock-solid explanation. Quote, either me or the dog were in imminent danger. I did the appropriate thing and sent it to where coyotes go. Which I assume was into a canyon wearing rocket skates. And Perry, Perry even told the Des Moines Register, quote, I'm getting more and more comfortable every day that this is what I've been called to do. Sadly, yesterday, the governor backed off the claim that God was calling him to run, saying, quote, There's a lot of different ways to be called. My mother may call me for dinner. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe he's just been called for dinner by his mom. Wait. What's that on his grilled cheese sandwich? Jesus. Oh, please. Oh, please, Lord. Please send Rick a sign. Perhaps, like you showed Noah, send Rick a rainbow. No, wait, that's kind of gay. You know what? Just send him cash. He'll take it from there.
10: The big picture, ladies and gentlemen, is that once again, this president, he's so funny to watch, isn't he? Because he's such an anachronism. The more I look at him, the more I I realize he's a man that doesn't realize yet how out of time and space he is. He thinks he's still in the earlier era of American politics. He's playing the game by the old standard rules. And I'm looking at him going, I thought you were smarter than that. You know, after our last president, it's, um, you know, it's so gratifying to have someone you know is intelligent up there and can really, you know, deep think these problems and everything. But I don't see any real indication that he's doing that, that this guy has any much of a bigger picture mentality than the last guy we had. The last guy just sounded less like he did. This guy's more disappointing because you listen to him talk and you go, well, this guy has a clear understanding of what's going on. And then based on his actions, you realize he doesn't. He thinks this is an era of politics as usual. When you look back on President Obama's first term, the way he behaved in this whole debt ceiling thing is just, I mean, this is standard. This is his pattern, right? And I think people are starting to wake up to that. Um, But what the president doesn't realize is that we live in extraordinary times right now. He's playing by the playbook, you know, for non-extraordinary times. He thinks he's going to be able to get up there and ignore his base who elected him. Pretend like he fought hard for the problems that he ran on, accuse the Republicans of stopping him, and then say, if you don't vote for me, um, you know, we're going to get those people. I would argue to you folks that we very well could have, and I hope we do have, a primary challenger for the president. Now, Many of you not old enough to remember the idea of a primary challenger for a sitting president, but this sort of stuff does happen, and sometimes it's someone other than Ralph Nader who tries to do it. Back in 1979, 1980, when Jimmy Carter was running for re-election, and you may remember Jimmy Carter, he's not someone who at the time was thought to be a very good president, so the youngest of the Kennedy brothers in politics, uh, major politics, uh Teddy, Uh, ran against him in 1980. Now, the track record is poor for primary challengers. Ronald Reagan um, did the same thing in 1976 to Gerald Ford. Doesn't happen very often, is almost never successful. Maybe never successful. I'm trying to think of a time when it was ever successful. May have never been successful. I can't think of an incident. But what it is, more than anything, is a serious rebuke for the president. There's nothing that's more of a slap in the face than having someone... From your own party challenge you when you're the top dog. Usually the party is willing to sacrifice anything to keep their man in power rather than take a chance on having the other guy. Normally when you get these primary challengers you get them from the base of the party too. You don't get them from the moderate wing, you get them from the true believers. In 76 when Ford was challenged by Reagan, Reagan challenged him from the right. You're not conservative enough, Mr. President. You've let you know, the Republican voters down on all these issues that really matter to them, Mr. President. In seventy-nine, eighty, when Teddy was doing it to Carter, it's from the left. Barack Obama needs a primary challenger who will go in there and essentially promise to do a lot of the things President Obama promised to do, but really do them. And to take him to task for not doing them himself. You see, this is an unusual election, first of all. Second of all, it would be a good thing for the system to have someone that President Obama couldn't simply write off because they're not a Republican, they're not the enemy, so you don't just say, well, that's coming from them, be somebody, members of your party, respect. I I would love to think that a Mike Gravel was young enough to do this again, but he's not. But there could be someone like him and get up there and... Call him to the carpet on everything. See, folks, President Obama's going to say that he fought for those things that he ran on, but he was stymied and he didn't have the votes and the Republicans this and that and the special interest, that and this. We have to have someone who runs against him for the system's sake. Republicans should be hoping for this too. Someone who runs against him and just says, Mr. President, you didn't fight for this stuff. Forget the idea of not achieving or deciding to compromise while giving away 90% and you know, claiming 10% as victory. You didn't fight. The people didn't elect you to go there and mention something. The people didn't elect you to put your plan forward and then meekly take it back. The people didn't elect you to get elected again. The people elected you to fight and, if necessary, get run over. You may have been our sacrificial lamb, but you refused to be sacrificed. You don't deserve a second term, Mr. President, because you didn't live up to anything you promised for the first one. Why should you be rewarded? The system will suffer if you are. Remember, I've told you folks over and over again that one of the flaws in our system is we have no way at all to hold a president. Heck, we have no way at all to hold most of our legislators at the federal level accountable for the promises they make. None. None. There is no downside at all to them personally if they go to Washington, D.C. and either decide that they were wrong when they ran or change their mind or lied while they were running any of those things. There's no penalty at all. So why wouldn't you do it? Especially when, you know, you have the mentality about reelection that a lot of these people do. A political science professor will always call a person like me to the carpet when I say something like that. And they will say, Dan, you're totally ignoring the fact that the voters have the ability at the ballot box to punish that person for not doing what they promised. They can vote him out. Well, Democrats are not going to vote for Michelle Bachmann, ladies and gentlemen. We all know that. They're not going to say, well, Barack Obama deserves to be punished, so I'm voting for Michelle Bachmann." It's not going to happen. But they might vote for someone who was the equivalent of a Mike Gravel or someone who challenged President Obama for not living up to his promises and saying it's much more important that those issues be fought for and that those issues be brought out front. The American people need to have the discussion. That's the value, Mr. President, of you getting run over publicly. I can hear people in Washington, D.C. working for the Democrats saying, why should our president be weakened by getting steamrolled on something like this? Because he gets up front and he fights for it, and then people talk about it, and it's important. And then on the next issue, you can say, here, they're doing it again. Working against your interests again. Caving into the special interests again. Eventually, Mr. President, it's like a running back in American football. You run, you get one yard. You run, you get two yards. You run, you get minus three yards. But eventually, over time, you start cracking the holes, and if you don't, Stop worrying about what that means to your stats and your career, and look at what it means to the overall game plan. Maybe that opens up the past, then. Sports metaphors aside, we have a case here of yet another politician much more worried about their re-election chances and the re-election chances of their friends than, you know, falling on their sword. This isn't the 1990s, Mr. President. You needed to fall on your sword. Because you didn't, you deserve to be challenged from someone from your own party who's going to call you on the carpet... ...for your failures. I consider it to be mostly a failure of will... ...because I haven't seen the fight... ...but some might say just a failure of effectiveness. I think that what is deserving, though... ...of the largest rebuke... ...is the fact that you didn't even fight. People would have you reelected tomorrow... ...if you went up there... ...and stood for your beliefs that you ran on... ...and got steamrolled. You would be rewarded for that. You do not deserve to be rewarded for giving up and giving in, and then going to the American people and acting like it's some kind of victory, on issue after issue after issue, you might as well have been the last president. Some columnists suggest the last president wouldn't have been as bad in some respects. These are liberal columnists. You deserve to have a primary challenger. It would be good for the country. See, you know, folks, it's always so hard for me, and you know I want a third party or an independent person. That's what I want. But as many of you and I, I mean, we have these conversations for years now, point out that the two parties have such a stranglehold on the system. The best chance you have ever is for one of the major two parties to produce some element in it that can become the, you know, beginnings, the seed, the germ of reform. And so when you actually talk about one of the parties providing a challenger to the status quo, you know, even if you don't like this candidate and their beliefs, That's somebody that's good for the system right now, folks, because the status quo sucks. And it's killing us. And both parties, for by and large, are part of it. If you can't get a viable third party or independent person up there, then give me a primary challenger. And again, for the same reasons I always say, folks, I'm not thinking this person's going to unseat President Obama. I'm thinking this person's going to get up there and call him to the carpet, which this country needs. This is something we don't do, by the way, anymore. has to be done all the time. We need to go back and have hearings on all these things that have been done, folks. That's what keeps government open. We used to do this in the 1970s, by the way. Have these open hearings where, you know, John Stewart had something the other night on his Daily Show program. And it's something we've talked about. We actually had some audio um, years ago from the British Parliament. And when you see them debating the issues... What you love about it and what makes Americans jealous is that there's nowhere to run and hide, right? You get exposed. You get exposed for your mental abilities. You get exposed for your lack of ability to back up some policy you supported. Whatever it is, the opposition's going to find you and nail you down because they have these public debates where they just, you know, they needle the hell out of you. And the prime minister has to get up there and and respond to every point and everybody's hooting and hollering. And you look at that and you go, my God, the openness is positively chilling. In a good way. Since goosebumps up my spine it makes me think, God, what would that, you know, how would that help here? Where none of our legislators had to get up and explain anything. And the most important things for us to explain, they get out of explaining by just saying, sorry, that's a secret. In 75 years, those files will be opened.
4: For farmers fighting
10: foreign hands, just for a market share. They'll bid you out of house and home and leave your pockets bare i come back if you stand up strong To see your stop house brought So even you
7: must beat the drums of freedom
3: Now I'm on record as saying I think Newt Gingrich is the guy laughter But I think I may have to eat a little crow, or whatever it is that Newt's been eating. I'm going to say Oreo Cakesters. The former Speaker of the House announced his candidacy back in May, and he hasn't been seen much since, apart from a guest spot on C-SPAN's I Love the 90s. Now, Newt's been struggling in the polls. He lost most of his staff. Then he lost the rest of his staff. (laughs) And to top it off, he lost the startup disc for his wife. (laughs) Now, folks, there has been. He keeps beach balling. Now, folks, there's been more bad news. According to records filed with the FEC, Newt's campaign is $1 million in debt. Uh, Folks, this is perfectly understandable. Newt has major expenses. For instance, he spent eight hundred thousand dollars on his campaign website. (laughs) Now, sure, Newt could have had his nine-year-old nephew design a website, and all he'd have to pay him was one of his Oreo snacksters. (laughs) Snacksters, But for eight hundred k grand, large. Newt got one flashy state-of-the-art interactive cyberweb portal net. Look, it's got a logo, and it's clearly photo-capable. It's got a donate button, a donate today button, another donate to support the campaign button, and a donate now button. So clearly, clearly the core message is getting out still i can't figure out why eight hundred thousand wait a minute is that a facebook share icon (laughs) those aren't cheap so clearly every penny accounted for but the rest of newt's debt stems from his frequent private jet travel like the four hundred thousand dollars he presently owes moby dick airways (laughs) what a shame that this debt to moby dick may cripple newt's campaign He has pursued the presidency for years, hunted it with a single-minded devotion. It's like the presidency is his, his, I'm blanking here. Jimmy, help me out with an appropriate image. No, no, no. Something else. White whale! With money tight, Newt will have to abandon Moby Dick Airways and start traveling on metaphorical unattainable goal bus lines.
10: guy who i want to run against president obama or the woman let's not forget that might be an opening we haven't thought about follow the first african-american president with the first female president and have it be someone who will go up and say you can trust me i'm not going to go and do what the president did you know what you could even do ladies and gentlemen you could have someone sign a pledge saying i'm only going to run for one term I will not run for another. You can sue me if I do. I'll sign a contract. I'm going to get up there. I know people hate contracts now because that's overdone. But just say, you know I'm going to get steamrolled, dying for these causes in a political sense, because I've already said I'm not going to be around. This is a a kamikaze politician, Ben. It's a one-way trip, right? It's a one-term trip. They're going to get to D.C., and they're going to say, I'm going to fight and die because i got nothing to lose. I'm not running again. So, you know, if you're going to steamroll me, you're going to do it in front of the American people, and I'm going to be screaming every step of the way. You know how you're cutting their throat, how you're voting for things that go against their interest, how you know you're screwing the middle and lower classes of this country. There was a piece, um, I want to say about two weeks ago, in Rolling Stone magazine's um, blog section from Matt Taibbi, and Taibbi's done a great job of looking at like the Wall Street problems and everything. And he wrote a piece talking about, you know, it's a mystifying thing to those of us who watch the American system for a long time. What happened to the Democratic Party? And again, even if you're a Republican, you don't want what happened to the Democratic Party to have happened because there's a certain balance in the American system that's important. And it's been changing for a long time now. And there's a certain point where the imbalances get so precariously bad that that it screws the whole system up, Republicans and Democrats. Here's what... Taibbi wrote about the fact that the Democrats have sort of abrogated their role in the balancing act of the teeter totter that used to be American politics. He calls it the DLC. He refers to it as the DLC era in this piece and just so you know the DLC era means the Democratic Leadership Council era that's the president Clinton era democrats who decided that the best way to beat republicans was to throw off the shackles of you know the working class and the middle class and all these things that the democratic party had always stood for and embrace you know what the republicans were doing and win elections because of it and the way that these people Baby boomers, for the most part, um, now growing up and becoming pragmatic. The way that they justified this was saying it was better to have Democrats in office who cared about the things that Democrats cared about, even if they didn't you know, push them very hard or achieve much, than it was to have Republicans. That same old lesser of two evils question that kills us every time. Here's what Taibbi writes. I did not put a date on here, so we will go back and put it in the show notes. How typical of me, Ben. Um, this is an exact... Quote, um, from the piece, a couple of paragraphs, here's how it starts. Quote, this is from um, near the end of the piece. Quote, The blindness of the DLC-era third-way Democratic Party continues to be an astounding thing. For more than a decade now, they've been clinging to the idea that the path to electoral success is social liberalism plus laissez-faire economics. In other words, get Wall Street and corporate America to fund your campaigns and get minorities, pro-choice, and gay marriage activists, who will always be frightened into loyalty by the Tea Party Christian loonies on the other side, to march at your rallies and vote every November. They've abandoned the unions and jobs platform that was the party's anchor since Roosevelt, and the latest innovations all involve peeling back their own policy legacies from the 20th century. Obama's new plan, for instance, might involve slashing Medicare and Social Security under quote-end-quote pressure from the Republicans. Taibbi continues, I simply don't believe the Democrats would really be worse off with voters if they committed themselves to putting people back to work, policing Wall Street, throwing their weight behind a real public option in health care, making hedge fund managers pay the same tax rates as ordinary people, ending the pointless wars abroad, etc. That they won't do these things because they're afraid of public criticism and, quote, end quote, responding to pressure is an increasingly transparent lie. This, please, Briar Fox, don't throw me in that there Briar Patch deal isn't going to work for much longer. Just about everybody knows now that they want to go into that Briar Patch. End quote. Taby's right, folks. We don't have people... That balance out our system anymore because we don't have a party that represents the sorts of people in the society the Democrats used to pretend to represent. The funny thing is, is that they used to pretend to do it, and they used to pretend well. Now, they don't even pretend well. Do you hear the Democrats really talking about poor people anymore? Do you hear? I mean, it, it, it's astounding how far we've come. The best idea I can think of is having. You know, have some whack job, Democrats, somebody who's so far to the left, they sound like you pulled them out of the late 60s, early 70s. Right. Get them up there and have them, you know, if they were believable and if they really if you thought to yourself, OK, I fell for President Obama, but I know that this person will fall on their sword, you know, striving for these things. They have a long track record of their lives of pushing these issues. That's why guys like Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich appeal to me. You can look at their track record. These guys have sacrificed themselves over and over again, public scorn, criticism, all that stuff for what they believe in. So even if you don't believe in it, you can kind of rest assured that at least these people probably aren't going to change their spots once they're elected. I've rarely seen someone do it as blatantly as the president has. Does he deserve to get reelected You know when he does that? And if he does, what's the message you're sending to all of them? Over and over and over again. And I can hear the hardcore Democrats right now saying, Dan, everything you say makes sense. But, you know, we'd be loony to allow the other side to take over because we want to send Barack Obama a message. That's the same attitude that we always have, ladies and gentlemen, as Americans. This is what sustains the system. Nobody wants to take the shot. That's why Social Security isn't fixed when you could just change the age by a few years and boom, done, easy. No one wants to take the shot. All these people are afraid to take a political blow. They're so concerned. I mean, it's amazing to me. They are so concerned about their jobs. I get a little scared anytime anybody is, you know, willing to sell their soul almost to get some position. And then always ask why. What's so important to you? You're not going to be a millionaire at this job, right? Although we don't really elect people who aren't almost millionaires. And if they weren't millionaires when they went into office, they are when they come out. Why do these people want to be reelected so bad? What happened to the idea of I'll go to Washington, I'll do some good, and then I'll go have a life? If that's your attitude, you don't care about that next election more than you care about, you know, your legacy. And legacies are about achievement, folks. And achievement means passing things and bettering people's life. It doesn't mean, you know, what it says on your tombstone. He served 15 terms as congressman. That applies that he did something well. Maybe he just played the game of politics well. That's no legacy President Obama deserves a primary challenger more than any president I've ever lived through. And the system almost demands it. Make this man answer questions from his own people, the Democrats, about why he let them down. And don't stand for answers like, well, I tried and we just didn't have the votes. Or I thought it would be better to come away with something rather than nothing at all. Let them steamroll you. There's something noble about being the hero who dies a symbolic, political death for the cause. You will be idolized. You will be a cult figure. You will stay in the hearts of Americans the way some presidents have in the past, whose portraits for decades after they left office were up in the homes of average Americans. The way you make a real legacy, Mr. President, is by standing up for your beliefs. The way you get reelected may mean jettisoning those beliefs. I think we've seen what's more important to you pretty much since Inauguration Day. I hope for the system's sake, someone gets up and challenges you on all those issues you ran on. And I hope they bring, you know, the archive of YouTube videos that they can play right in front of you and make you argue with candidate Barack Obama, Mr. President. I'm just gonna warn you now, he gives a really good speech.
8: Hi Jay, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Um, Can you respond to, I guess, Mara from Pittsburgh's response to your idea for a talking point aggregator. Um, and when I heard her message, I was like, yeah, she's totally right. It's all right, I mean, she basically said that progressives think people are smart, they're capable, they respond to facts, and that's why we support you know, an open, inclusive societies. whereas Republicans tend to think people dumb, that they're not people governing themselves, Uh, and so because they know what's best for people, they um, feed a lie uh, based on a repeated message to get in people's heads. And I'm loving all that. Where it breaks down for me says, and therefore, progressives should not engage in the talking points war, or maybe just that we wouldn't be as effective in the talking points war. And that's where I'm like, no, that's not true. But I look at earlier things, all partially because they're great talking points that counter the traditional right talking points of, you know, the, the liberal elite thinks they're so smart, uh, they're up in their ivory tower having these, these, uh, outlandish debates, and they're, you know, invoking this freedom of speech, air quotes, uh, in order, you know, to defend their nefarious activities, whereas we, Republicans will follow up by saying we know the truth, after which they insert whatever lie they're spreading at the moment but the, the fact is there's, there's points all over the place because repeated messages really do work, and it's not because people are dumb it's because they're busy um, uh, between school, work kids church community services having a social life somewhere in there there's a small window of time uh to catch most people's attention unless you're you know constantly on message you miss the window if you miss the window you lose the chance to start that fact-based rational discussion with them and secondly emotional appeals just work Uh, Human beings, you know, uh, civilized apes, are not fundamentally rational creatures. If we were, science would be easy. We wouldn't have to do double-blind studies. We wouldn't have to constantly guard against fooling ourselves when seeking truth uh, because most people decide things based on their gut. Uh, This isn't me. This is social science. Back this up. And then with the confirmation bias coming in, you cherry pick information to support the position that you've already established. Now, facts can um, uh, be brought in to change somebody's mind, especially, you know, it works best if you research something on your own. Um, but it's hard, it's um, very uh, time intensive, and um, takes a lot of work to change someone else's opinion with facts, if you've ever argued with your brother-in-law over the 9-11 truth or stuff, you know this is true. Uh, And then secondly, it's emotional appeals, um, uh, uh, mobilized action that, you know, compare your response in reading something from the Center for Tax Justice. You say, oh, wow, our tax system's messed up. We need something more progressive. Or you see a video clip from US Uncut, and you're like, I need to get out in the streets and make a more progressive tax system in the country. So I'm saying, Jay, go with this aggregator idea. The talking points war is where movements get built. That's where people, um, get mobilized. That's where they get energized to go out and change stuff. There's my two cents. Thank you for all you do. And, uh, yeah, go with the aggregator. Thanks, Jay. Jay, this is Cliff from Bloomington, Indiana. I've uh, been listening to the show
9: for. Probably about a year and a half, two years. I uh, love it, and through your shir- show, I was turned on to uh, Midweek Politics, which is now a David Packham show, obviously. Right about time it switched over, and I also really like his show. But I wanted to let you know, um, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's a great show with Tavis Smiley and Cornell West weekly. It's called Smiley and West. If you search uh, in iTunes, P-R-I, Smiley and West, uh, you can find it. There's some really great clips on that show pertaining to a lot of social issues really important stuff especially regarding uh poverty and you know our, our lower lower social class uh population so anyways yeah that's a that's a great show to listen to uh, and, and potentially get clips from uh, the last episode they had a uh, a great clip from uh, an opening speech at their um poverty tour that they're doing right now and there were some really great statements but anyways just wanted to let you know about that and uh for uh doing all the work to do for
0: the show. Have a good day. fight! Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-2022. Three four one zero. So I got a comment recently that I haven't – I don't think I've talked about yet, uh, but it was a kind of quirky, interesting comment. It was in reference to the new social social media aspects of the website where you can share your favorite clips through your various networks and email and beyond. And so he was – the commenter was referencing how I had described the new system and how I had basically said that – I was really confident that you guys would like the system, be excited about it and so on because it's it does the same thing for you that I do kind of the hard way. Like I have to listen to all this stuff, but I pick out all the best parts and I share it with you. And now I've made it really easy for you to pick out the best parts you like and share it with the people uh, that, you know, that you can reach. And, um, and what his comment was, You know, it's scary how well you know your audience. I thought that was kind of an interesting comment uh, in reference to this. And I thought, you know, honestly, like it's not that odd at all. It's not strange that I would know my audience all that well because, you know, I make this show for me. It's the show that I want to listen to. Um, So it stands to reason pretty well that the people who listen are going to be really similar to me. So knowing my audience is only a half step beyond knowing myself, which is pretty easy. And so that comment got me thinking a little bit about a question that I get, you know, kind of, kind of all the time. From if if I ever meet, meet listeners or, or people ever uh, ask me about what I do, and uh, what often comes up is the question, "How do you listen to that much political media and not go crazy?" And uh, it took me a, a while to figure out what the answer to that was, and then when I figured it out, it was pretty simple. The answer is this show. This show is the reason that I can listen to all this stuff and not go crazy and the reason is that this show is an outlet if I was you know a uh, a container that just uh, consumed media until I was overflowing well then that would be me going crazy but I'm not I'm a filter I take news in I filter it, and then I have an outlet and that's what. Allows me to kind of maintain sanity, and so I was thinking, you know like that's if that's how I feel, I'm sure damn near everyone's gonna be kind of in that same boat if if you uh, if you listen to too much news, you're probably gonna go crazy and so you end up turning it off or whatever. And so what I'm doing now is imparting to you some very valuable information that I learned basically on accident by doing this show is that a great way to Stay tuned in, stay connected to politics, and not get burned out on it is to have an outlet. Now, this honestly isn't like fresh news. I've said this before, but it's been a while, so it's always good to you know repeat uh, valid points like this. But what I hadn't really thought of before is this whole social media uh, you know aspect of the site now is, I mean, it is that outlet for you guys. what I've said in the past is, if you feel like you're getting burned out, uh, you know, make sure you have an outlet. Go talk to your coworkers. Make sure you're, you know, bitching to your family about politics or you know whatever. Like, have have a place where you can talk about it and kind of get it out, out of your system. Uh, you know, get news across to other people. Like, it makes you feel good. Makes you feel like you're being active and and making a difference at, at least in whatever small way you can. And now I'm realizing, like, getting in the habit of sharing these clips. It will have the exact same therapeutic effect as I see, you know, just by doing the show. So, since this is the big project I'm working on right now and I really want everyone to get engaged and and share links and all those sorts of things, I thought, like, man, I should mention this again. So, there you go. I just mentioned it. I honestly think that, uh, you know, sharing clips through the site is, uh, I mean, it's going to be like voting. You know, once you do it once, it's going to be really easy to realize that it's like, Easy and fun, and you're going to want to do it again and again and get in the habit of it. So if you haven't yet, go ahead and check that out. Uh, details, of course, are at the website bestoftheleft.com and it's, it's incredibly simple. You'll just see in the show notes all the listed uh, clips that, that you just heard in, in a given episode with all the links to share however it is uh, you're able, you know, everything from email all the way up to you know the brand new Google+ Plus and everything in between. So That's it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members who make the show possible. Diane B signed up for her leftist yearly membership back on September 10th of last year and David R signed up almost exactly a year ago as a leftist monthly member and has stuck with the show ever since then. So Huge thanks to Diane and David and all the members and donors who helped make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate your Twitter and Facebook accounts now. Uh, All that is right through the giant donate your account banner right on the page. You can't possibly miss it. And all the details about that, uh, will be given before you make any commitment whatsoever. You can stay connected to the show by joining up with us directly on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, DC, my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com.